Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here reporting from Denver, Colorado, where I'm attending the Indo Expo, a very, very large hemp event. And I've got my partner on the line up in Chicago, Larry Mishkin of Hoban Law. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm doing just fine. I wish I was still out in Denver. The weather back here sucks. That was beautiful out there, man. Sunny and warm. It's sunny and warm. It's 60 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. Wow. Okay. I'm in the wrong city. So to pick up where we left off last time, uh, how was the Tedeschi Truck Show last night in Chicago? Well, uh, the good news is I made it on time, and it was probably one of the best Tedeschi Truck Show I ever saw. Uh, I was there with a whole bunch of my buddies. Uh, my buddy Rob picked up some tickets. My great friends Mike and Lynn were in from Minnesota. And, you know, everybody in the group is all huge fans of the band. And as we all walked out, there was an overwhelming consensus that that may have been the best show we ever saw. For whatever reason, and you know this, Jim, right? Some nights you go and Jerry's on fire. Other nights he's just kind of playing. Eric Trucks was on fire. Uh, they did a, uh, in memory of Elizabeth Reed, for about 25 minutes. That was just unbelievable. And uh, they could have gone all night with it. It was, uh, it was great. They did Bell Bottom Blues. They did a cover of Elton John's The Border Song. And it was, uh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Again, if you ever have a chance to go see Tedeschi Trucks, that's a must-see for anyone who likes that kind of music. Well, that sounds great. I'll look forward to seeing him on the Red Rocks tour this summer. Uh, I did also notice this week that Fish announced their summer tour. I noticed that. And much to, much to my dismay, somehow or other, Chicago is not on the tour schedule. The closest they're going to come is Deer Creek in Indianapolis. Uh, which I was very disappointed about. No Chicago shows. Maybe they've got something special planned for Chicago later on, but that's pretty unusual. Normally we get them either up at Alpine Valley or uh, one of the downtown venues in the summer. That is interesting. Well, I'm happy to say that Denver and Dix is on for Labor Day weekend, three shows. But for the second year in a row, there's no camping, which puts a damper on the party because then you have to, you know, scatter after the show and not all hang out all night. I see also they're doing a big West Coast swing. Yep. There's a lot on the West Coast, and I saw Dick's picks. Or Dick's picks. Dick's uh, at, uh, in Denver there. My oldest son, he and his crew go there every year for that. But this year, my son is getting married on Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. So his crew is going to have to be in Atlanta. None of them are thrilled about it. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do for love, I guess. So uh, they're going to do without Dick's this year. But, yep, no camping again. That, you're right, and that does take the fun out of it. Yeah, we have a wedding on... Um in our group too. And, um, I just joke with my sons. I say, Hey, cheer up. Maybe they'll break up. You never know. Right. I, I can't say that around my house, but I know what you mean. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, um, the gorge, which I've never been to the gorge and I might make my way out there. Then they come down to Tahoe and they, they, they're doing the LA forum, which I just saw dead and co there. Right. You were telling us how much, uh, how they really turned it into a great music palace. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, they spent millions renovating it. And the sound for Dead and Company was some of the best I've ever had. And I was in the second level. I wasn't down low. So, um, well, that's what's going on musically. Um, yep, spring is coming. Jazz Fest is coming. Dead and Co. at Jazz Fest. So we have a lot to look forward to. A lot of good stuff. I did get a review of the Trey Anastasio shows in Los Angeles. He did two nights there. Our older son, Matt Marty, attended and uh, said they were great, fun shows. He got a VIP, so he was at the soundboard on the second night. So that's what's going on musically. But we do have a special guest. And Larry, uh, you have a, we have a fellow lawyer today, so I'm going to let you do the introduction. Well, the real question that we have here is, what do we do in this industry 
if your business fails. And here's why I asked the question. Bankruptcy is a creature of federal law. Federal law doesn't recognize cannabis because it's of its Schedule One status. So it does kind of beg the question of what do we do in this situation? And as a lead-in, Jim, let me ask you, what have you been advising your clients to date on what they should do uh, if they reach that position? Well, they're just getting there. Um, the big issue is not necessarily creditors because it's hard for cannabis companies to get bank loans. Almost all their capital for the last 10 years has come from friends and family and internal growth. But um, they do tend to owe the IRS a lot of money. And then in the other walk of life, if um, your taxes are over three years old from date of assessment, you can dismiss those income taxes in federal bankruptcy court. But there was an opinion a number of years ago, the first time a cannabis company went to the bankruptcy courts, and they were denied. I don't recall the details. Do you, Larry? I do not. No, that was before my time. That was when you guys were, were kicking ass, and we were, we were just starting to get started in the business. All right. Well, Larry, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest, and we can ask him these questions straight up. Okay, Jim. Yes, you're right. We are uh, very lucky today, and we can get some answers to these questions. Our guest is Mark Salzberg. Uh, Mark is a bankruptcy attorney, and uh, he's very kind enough to come on our show today and discuss with us the answer to that very question, uh, if there is an answer, uh, what happens when a cannabis business fails? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on the on the uh, show with you guys uh, today. And um, bankruptcy and cannabis, it's an interesting topic. And unfortunately, right now, uh, at least as the way that the law now stands, bankruptcy is off limits to a large extent to the cannabis companies and to landlords, to cannabis growers, providers of services and providers of products to cannabis companies. So when you're talking about a cannabis company, and again, that could be anywhere, anyone between a grower, cultivator, distributor, or a landlord, uh, or seller of products that are used in the growing or the cultivation, bankruptcy is just not an option. What you're left with are state law remedies, which typically, well, from the, the actual, uh, we'll call it the debtor, non-bankruptcy debtor standpoint, the, the company standpoint, would be a dissolution. From a creditor standpoint, you're talking about a receivership or an assignment for the benefit of the creditors um, or an Article 9 foreclosure. So, wait, so this is fascinating now. What you're, you're saying is that access to the bankruptcy court is blocked even to businesses that are ancillary to the industry, even if they're not plant-touching businesses themselves? That, that's exactly right. And I, the way that I look at this and, and just kind of pictorially, if you have a series of concentric circles, you have really at the center of the the, the, the the center circle would be the grower or the cultivator. And then as you go out, you have, say, the landlords. Uh, after that, you have the provider of the services. Um, and then you keep going further and further out. And so the courts have been, it's not just the cultivators, it's not just the sellers. Courts have prevented, say, for instance, landlords from filing. The courts have prevented, there's a, a case, and we can go into case specifics, but a seller of hydroponic equipment district court in Colorado just uh, the past year uh, dismissed a bankruptcy case, and they sold to both uh, cannabis growers, cannabis customers, as well as non-cannabis customers. So it's really what the courts are doing is they're looking at the Controlled Substances Act and saying, are you in violation of the CSA? And that, as we know, can be, you know, can, can be multiple, you can be in violation of the CSA in multiple ways. You could be a cultivator, you can be an ancillary company providing, you know, like hydroponics or a landlord. 
And you can also, but very quickly, you can aid in a bet violation of the CSA, which could, by you know, by virtue of that of that violation, the aiding and betting of a breach of uh, federal law, preclude yourself from bankruptcy protection. And, and Jim, look, Jim, let me ask you this, because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and, and you're you're closer to the financial heart of people. In your experience today, what is the fail rate of cannabis businesses that you've dealt with? Well. <clears throat> I guess that depends on your definition of fail. You know, many are just limping along. Many close their doors. And as I said, their creditors are usually their friends and family. So there's not usually a bankruptcy proceeding. However, we do have some clients who owe over a million dollars of income taxes coming up on three years. So we may have a test case. Uh, I think Mark mentioned that, or maybe um, we mentioned before the show started, that if your taxes are over three years old, you can get those dismissed in a federal bankruptcy court. But what Mark is saying, and I have another question for Mark, is those avenues are, are not open to people in this industry. Now, Mark, what about another illegal activity? Would bankruptcy courts be allowed to you if you were doing something illegal but not marijuana? Well, it depends. I mean, the way that the courts look at it um for instance, we all know that there are multiple different types of bankruptcies. There's Chapter 7, Chapter 13, Chapter 11, and Chapter 15. And so you have to really break this up on a chapter-by-chapter basis uh, when you think about what the courts are doing. So, but then, for instance, in Chapter 7, which is a, a liquidation chapter, a Chapter 7 trustee is appointed who then takes uh, control, possession of all the assets of the debtor. With a cannabis company, that would include, for instance, the, the actual... Uh, the actual plant. What is a trustee going to do with that? Going to sell that? Well, a trustee can't do that in the bankruptcy court's mind because that would be violating uh, federal law. That's why Chapter 7 cases are then typically dismissed, typically on the motion of the U.S. trustee's office, which acts as kind of like a trap, a cop, uh, to make sure that procedures and policies are implemented. Uh, Chapter 11 and 13, which are uh, generally speaking, well, both chapters provide for the confirmation of a plan, the question that is before the court in the cannabis space is, does that plan rely upon um, the proceeds of illegal activity? So, for instance, in the case of uh, the hydroponic company that I mentioned before in the Way to Grow case, the court said, well, we can't confirm a plan because you're selling product to a large extent, although I think they, they thought that was approximately 90% of its customer base was the cannabis industry. And so they, you're violating federal law. You're, we can't confirm a plan which itself is based upon violations of federal law. So that's really the, the construct that the bankruptcy courts have taken with cannabis. Other illegal activity, you know, it's, it's, it, it would be a different thought process. The bankruptcy courts really would look at it in a different way. Very interesting. Very interesting, but doesn't this, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'll I'll ask the two lawyers on the call, doesn't this come down, though, to a constitutional issue of equal access to the court system? How can one group of citizens be treated differently from everybody else? That's our argument in 280E, that they're applying it, denying deductions to one group of taxpayers and not to others. With that, I'll let the the lawyers here... uh, opine on that premise from a bankruptcy standpoint i don't think it's really a constitutional issue at least when you when you're talking about the chapter 7 11 or 13 
it's really a question of, again, putting the bankruptcy robes on. Are you acting in violation of federal law? Because, again, cannabis is a, is a Schedule One narcotic under the Controlled Substances Act. Constitutional issues come up in, in a Chapter 15 context, which is the fourth chapter that I mentioned before. And that is a, that's an interesting chapter which provides for cross-border bankruptcies. In other words, a, an insolvency proceeding that's instituted in another country where the debtor in the other country might have operations or assets in the United States, and they need the U.S. courts to recognize the foreign insolvency proceeding and to enforce the foreign insolvency proceeding. That's never been tested, as far as I'm aware, in the United States, whether or not a cannabis company, for instance, in Canada, which has operations, there are a, lot, there are a number of them that are domiciled in Canada that are on the Canadian Stock Exchange or a Canadian Stock Exchange. The, the question there is, would the U.S. court's recognition of a foreign cannabis insolvency proceeding, would it qualify under what's known as the public policy exception, where the courts don't have to recognize a foreign proceeding if it violates, you know, if it violates public policy? And there, constitutional issues would arise. What violates public policy? Typically speaking, you're talking about violating a constitutional issue a constitutional interest, not just necessarily violation of the Controlled right. Substances Act. Exactly. And, you know, Jim, what, I mean, the other thing that I would just, you know, immediately liken it to, and I hate to argue against what you're saying because I agree with the underlying premise, but, you know, in contract law, right, we have this exact same problem. There's a lot of courts that are very reluctant to enforce a marijuana contract because one of the underlying premises of contract law is a contract that has an illegal activity as the subject matter is not enforceable as a matter of public policy. Now, Colorado you know, was one of the first states to pass state legislation that, that granted specific subject matter jurisdiction to the state judges so that they could hear marijuana cases. Um, but, you know, I suppose you could similarly argue, hey, you're going to enforce everybody else's contract. I think what it really goes to is the underlying premise and, and the, the, the problem with the due process argument there is, no, we're consistent with everyone whose business is legal. You know, where you'd have a problem is if they were taking some, you know, illegal activity, but not others. And then you'd have more of a due process argument, I think. But, you know, I mean, having said that, I'm all for it. So if we can find a way to make it happen, that's all the better. You know, it's a, it's a real industry, it's got real money, and there are real failures involved, and people just need to have an option. Yeah, Larry, uh, you know, I, I completely echo what you just said, and, and there are actually, it's, it's interesting, when I talk about cannabis and bankruptcy, sometimes people say, well, it really doesn't matter, you're just talking about bankruptcy, what, is, you know, what, what do we care about bankruptcy cases, but the refusal of federal courts, bankruptcy courts, to uh, allow cannabis companies to access the bankruptcy courts has been extended to the district courts. There are a number of district court decisions. Ironically, in uh, there are at least two in district court cases coming out of the the uh, West Coast in Washington, and I believe my, the second one might have been Oregon, where the district courts have refused to enforce contracts for uh, where there was going to be a change of ownership of cannabis companies. Again, the cannabis companies were operating under state law; they were legal under state law, but the federal courts refused. To enforce those contracts because to do so, where they were going to compel the transfer of ownership interest, would violate federal law. So it's really, 
it's not just limited to the bankruptcy courts. It's now extending into the district courts as well. Interesting. <clears throat> well, a, sl- a sliver of hope. Um, I've been involved in arbitration and mediation in Colorado, and those contracts were enforced by the arbitrator. So a, a tip for the listeners is uh, when you write your contracts, you might want to put in there that you want to go to mediation or arbitration as opposed to district court, state, state district court um, to enforce your contracts. <clears throat> but it's all a matter of time before all this changes. Unfortunately, it can catch a lot of people uh, unawares. This might seem counterintuitive, but because it is so hard to raise capital and it is so hard to, you know, grow your business and, and have the, the capital infusion you need, not many, but some of our clients have actually used the IRS as a lending source. So they'll ring up three, four, five hundred thousand of income taxes they owe, get into a payment plan, and use the IRS as a source of capital. That's how crazy and counterintuitive this industry is. The, the one, you know, I would say that the one, interest, one interesting aspect of the financing side is that there are funds. You know, typically based in the Northeast, New York, which are looking at the cannabis industry, thinking down the line, four or five years in the future, they're putting their their you know they're putting their money into funds, thinking in four or five years we'll be able to lend into the space freely. The banking system will be open. Perhaps it will never is uh, cannabis will no longer be on schedule to no longer be scheduled under the Controlled Substances Act. And so there is money out there that is that uh, they're contemplating using in the cannabis space. We're just not there yet. Yes, I agree with that. Me too. It's a process. It'll happen over time, and eventually we will get there. Right. The huge curveball that, um, and I'm, I'm speaking to you from the parking lot of the Indo Hemp Expo in Denver. Absolutely enormous. Hundreds and hundreds of people here. Hundreds of exhibitors with all their heavy equipment for extraction and harvesting and trimming the plants. Just an amazing thing. And, of course, we now know since the 2018 Farm Bill passed, hemp is now legal. And the definition of hemp is generally 0.3% THC. Uh, but in reality, anything under 3.99% THC is um, considered hemp and is now legal. So the lines have totally blurred as to what's marijuana and what's hemp. Um, lots of samples here. I have to say, I, I enjoy the smokable hemp. It's very low THC. You still feel it a little bit, but unlike this high, the high test stuff that we have on the market today, you can actually sit and smoke a half a joint and not be wasted. Let's switch things over to uh, a little more music to finish up, and I'll um, I'll report more in more detail on the uh, Indo, Indo, Indo Expo from Denver on our next show and fill you in with some of the things I've learned. But uh, back to music for a bit. Um, it seems like everybody in a certain age group has a few memories of the Grateful Dead, and uh, I would like to ask Mark, they say if you remember that, Grateful Dead show, you probably uh, weren't really there. <laughs> but uh, I remember all my Grateful Dead shows in great detail because they were such wonderful and life-changing experiences for me. But, uh, Mark, the Grateful Dead played a lot around Washington, D.C. 
in uh, the 80s especially. Uh, you, what is your recollection of, of your first Grateful Dead show? Uh, my first show, I went to college in uh, outside of Philadelphia, small liberal arts college, and it was 1985, not to date myself, but it was 1985. We went to see them at Spectrum, which no longer exists, and we were picked up by a friend of a friend who was in a VW minibus. I forget what color, I just remember crowding into the back of the minibus with probably about 10 different people, getting out to the parking lot of the Spectrum um, for many hours beforehand, and I'd never seen anything like that. I saw the dead probably, I, I wouldn't, probably fewer than 10 times. The next time I saw them actually was in D.C. Before I worked for a few years before I went to law school. I saw them in uh, the old cap center in Landover. But, uh, you know, I, I remember just, I, I loved it, had, had a great experience with the show, loved the show, saw them again a number of times. And since then, I've, I've not seen, the one, one thing that's lacking is I haven't seen John Mayer play with them. I've seen John Mayer a number of times. He's one of my favorites. Unbelievable guitar player. Um, and I definitely would love to see the current lineup when he's in there. He's doing a, <clears throat> he's doing a great job. He's just playing at higher and higher levels. And it's interesting that you should say, talk about his um, work on his own because you know he has a large following in his own right and um, you know he wanted to come over to the Grateful Dead I guess it started rather dead and company it started when um, he and Bob Weir were both guests together on one of the late night shows I think it might have been Jimmy Fallon and um, that's what sparked the interest of those two working together and uh, yeah John Mayer's doing a great job uh, we talked on the last show on how he got to play Jerry's guitar last summer and uh, how great it sounded. And um, But, yeah, John Mayer, um, we've adopted him. He's officially a deadhead now. He's one of us. We just saw him in D.C. about six months ago, and uh, he's not promoting an album. He was just playing his, his music. But you could definitely tell that he'd been playing with the dead because his guitar work just it's it's morphing uh, from where it used to be. I mean, it's, it was absolutely amazing, but you could definitely tell the influence. Yeah, one one John Mayer story uh, that I heard him tell on uh, Dead the Deadhead uh, Grateful Dead channel. Um, he said, "Yeah, when he would first start playing with the Grateful Dead, he was a little bit unsure of himself, and Bob would give him a nod of the head, which meant he got a ninety-minute or two two-minute solo, and uh, it took him a while to get used to that." That all of a sudden, the ball was handed to him, and he could jam as long as he wanted to. That's funny, but good. And, and he's uh, he's taken it and run with it. He's done a great job. And Mark, um, if you were, if you want to see Dead and Co, they're playing the second weekend of Jazz Fest in New Orleans, uh, first weekend of May. You know, I I have never been to Jazz uh, Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and need to do it one of these days. Need to do it. You do need to go. It's Lollapalooza for adults. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm working on getting there this year. Yep, it's worth doing. I was, uh, there was one thing, I mean, not to mix uh, genres of music. There were a few things on my quote-unquote bucket list of music, and I, I did cross one off this summer. I did see Kiss for the first and very last time. <laughs> That's funny. That's the end. Not exactly the same quality of music. That's okay. They're still around. It's great. That's Gene Simmons, right? Yes, sir. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Yeah, Gene Simmons, I got to talk to him recently at a, at a cannabis event. He's investing heavily in some of the Canadian cannabis companies. What's interesting about uh, Gene Simmons is he never has drank or smoked anything. That's very true. And there he is after all these years still cranking it out. 
It's actually like uh, Springsteen as well. So I think we're coming to the end of our time slot. Um, Larry, Mark, do you have anything um, you want to get in before the end of the show? I would just say that you mentioned the Canadian companies. I think from a bankruptcy standpoint, um, that's really the, the area of interest. It's the foreign, non-U.S.-based ca- uh, cannabis companies. And again, typically I think you're going to be talking about Canadians um, looking to file because the Canadian market is saturated. There's a thriving black market uh, where they're complete, the prices are completely undercutting the, the uh, licensed legal uh, cannabis. And there is a real, uh, real realignment in Canada that's coming up and that's going to necessitate insolvency proceedings. And the question is going to be, those companies with U.S. operations or assets, can they access the U.S. courts through Chapter 15? That's going to be, from the legal standpoint, a really interesting issue. And I have a comment on that, <clears throat> since we work in that space. Uh, but yes, several of our clients, we've helped them go public, and the way they do it is they find a Canadian shell company that is all licensed and registered to be on the Canadian Stock Exchange, and they do a reverse merger into that Canadian company, but virtually all of their operations are U.S.-based cultivation, extraction, and dispensaries. And that's going to be the one of the main blocking points for Chapter 15, because then it gets into the question of, is this a foreign main proceeding, foreign non-main proceeding? Is Chapter 15, what relief would they even be entitled to as a matter of right in Chapter 15? So it gets, it gets complicated, but it certainly is interesting. Well, thank you so much for your insight. And we, for, I don't know if we mentioned it yet, but you're with a very prestigious law firm of Patton Boggs. You have offices all over the world, I believe. It's actually, well, I, it's Squire Patton Boggs. Uh, just sorry to correct you. It used to be Patton Boggs, but we merged, uh, combined about five years ago. With Squire Sanders, yeah, we have offices in the United States and around in Europe, and as well as in Asia. Well, I will look forward to meeting you personally the next time I'm in D.C., which will be in May. Um, thank you very much, Mark Salzberg, for being on our show. Well, it's been a pleasure, and you know, it's a great conversation. I really appreciate the time. Interesting, interesting issues all around. We appreciate your input. All right, everybody, uh, for Jim Marty. Everybody have a great week. Jim, a pleasure as always. Mark, thank you. And uh, keep listening and going to Grateful Dead shows. All right. So goodbye from the Grateful Dead Cannabis Show. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders 
that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.